Hi, listeners. Welcome to the Grief Out Loud podcast produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children. I'm Jana DeCristofaro and wanted to give you just a little heads up as you listen to this episode, you'll be hearing references to our old name, which was Dear Dougie. So just so you don't get too confused, you're listening to the right podcast and we look forward to bringing you even more great content under the Grief Out Loud name. Thanks for joining us. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast, produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children in Portland, Oregon. I'm Brendan Connolly. And I'm Tony Grace, our Chief Program Officer. So, after 30 years of listening to the stories of grieving children, teens, and adults, we wanted to share what we've learned from them with the larger community, which is you. Our podcast is a way to open up the often avoided conversations about grief. While we all experience death during our lives, most of us find ourselves lost and unsure when it does occur. We don't know what to do, how to feel, or how to talk about it. So whether you know someone who's dying, grieving a loss, or wanting to support someone who is, we're here to discuss topics and questions most relevant to you. This is a really interesting episode for a couple of reasons. One is we've got Tony on the line, which Woo-hoo. is pretty fun. Um, and Tony, Tony had... You came up with this podcast episode idea, and the the title is Living and Dying, Dying and Living, Grieving Before Death, which is uh, pretty, kind of an interesting and counterintuitive uh, statement, Grieving Before Death. Yeah, it is. Um, so it, it comes from our work uh, from a new program that we started, which was Pathways, and Pathways uh, works with families that have an advanced serious illness. So we're working with families prior uh, to the death, and something that we were thinking about is, is what's the overall concept that we want to we take in our approach with families, and we've been doing a lot of research, like reading articles and books and listening to books on tape and, and watching videos. And there wasn't anything that quite captured the lived experiences that either I had or my colleague Rebecca Hobbs Lawrence had, or even the families that we were working with. And Rebecca and I were just sitting down talking about it, and and we focused the conversation, or somehow the conversation arrived, to thinking about being uh, in the midst of, of dying. And we both were like, okay, we're on to something here. Um, but we were not quite sure what. And so we kind of left that conversation with an agreement that we would think about it. And separately, uh, the phrase living and dying uh, came to both of us. And we came back together and we're like, hey, we thought of this great idea and couldn't believe that the other one had thought of it too. That's um, cool. Yeah. That's cool serendipitousness. I like that. It is. It, it was just kind of like one of those like moments where it was just like the universe is, is responding to both of us leaning yeah. into the conversation. Yeah. And I like that the idea of uh, living and dying resonates with me. I get that. I, I had an, uh, one of my uncles. I only have a couple of uncles that I'm really close to. And one of them died a couple of years ago in, in L.A. And... I was down there um, for that, and he was so. By the time I got there, he was so weak, and it was just really clear that where this was going, you know. And yeah, um, and it was it was in my memory now. It's a it's a kind of has this bittersweet glow around it because 
it wasn't necessarily a sad time. It was just a different time of being with someone I loved so much and the family that I loved so much. And it was a, just a, a different way of being together. And it was sometimes sad and it was sometimes really fun. And it was hard. It was, it was a little, it was weird when it was fun because you're like, how can, why are we laughing? This is not even funny. Yeah, <laughs> you know? Right. Anyway. Right. Well, and um, I, I totally agree with you. Uh, like when my, my father-in-law was dying, um, he would kind of half joking, half warning uh, to us, reminding us that he wasn't dead yet. Yeah. And there was still a lot of life lived. And um, I think, you know, when families first come to the Pathways um, support group, they're thinking that all we're going to talk about is, is death or the dying process and, and force them to, to, to talk about that. But there's so much other things to talk about, um, including, like, the life that I have left to live. Yeah. Um, so. And sometimes it seems like that life that's left to live, at least in, in my experience with my uncle, was... And my uncle was a super cool guy, super thoughtful and philosophical, and and I and I loved him a bunch. But his and and nothing changed in that regard in his last days. But what was added was he was unable to do some really basic self maintenance, you know, mm-hmm. for him and during those last last few couple of months, I guess. And so things turned a little bit, you know. Was, he became humble and grateful and other people were really grateful to be able to care for him that way and it just opened up a a facet of relationship that was so real and raw and special and it, you almost think why can't we all be this way all the time why can't we all be this just wide open honest all the time you know and i know i know we can't but uh that was just a really interesting uh, it just i remember that fondly those days Yeah. Um, I I was going to say, speaking of caregiving, um, so we invited others into the conversation with us around thinking about what does this mean about living and dying. And uh, one of our uh, volunteers here at the Dougie Center just kind of said, well, what about the opposite, about there's a dying and living? Mm. And that was that was exactly our response was like oh there there's something to that as well yeah and uh so we we carried that conversation onward and we're like there there's something about this paradox between living and dying and dying and living and and them meeting somewhere in the middle um so you know you have the person with an illness who's living in dying and then you have the family members and the, the friends who are surrounding that person who are doing this dying in living. Um, and conversely, both of them uh, are also doing the opposite of, of that as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we really see it as a dual process, kind of like breathing, you know, like inhale and exhale. It takes both to sustain life. How, in the, in, as you do your research and uh, look, you know, looking into all the facets of are the pathways program how how much is there out there in other from other other writers or researchers about that kind of concept of of living and dying dying and living um it's there's a there's a lot 
if you go into like the Eastern uh, Eastern cultures, uh-huh. not so much in Western cultures. So, yeah. um, and this whole idea around um, mourning prior to the death has been something that has been in the research since like the 40s and you know there's been a, a couple terms that have been thrown around like anticipatory grief and anticipatory mourning this is on the western side of on the western thing. side right yeah, yeah. and um, and looking at those and there's been some controversies around definitions and around the conceptual framework so one of the things that we decided to do at the Ducky Center was just to decide that we're going to use the term grief yeah um, we believe that grief is is grief, whether it's before the death or after the death. Yeah, that makes sense, and uh, it's on point for us, I guess, too, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so our bodies are one part of being alive, and and this, I, I, I don't know if you guys ran into this, but I seem to have, I remember reading a fair bit, and I don't remember where, doggone it, I wish I could, but the idea that uh, doctors and scientists are not always in total agreement about what is death and what at what point and this is a little outside of the scope of our conversation but it occurs to me that you know there's uh brain death and there's right heart stoppage and right. and there it seems to be almost on a continuum a little bit where uh there's not a not a clear agreement about are you dead or are you not dead because sometimes you're dead but we can revive and so were they ever dead if they, you know, you know what I mean? Exactly. So it should be a one-way street. You shouldn't be able to come back necessarily. Right. So if you can come back, were you dead in the first place? That kind of thing. Right. Um, but, anyway. But dying is is a process and trying yep. to, to pinpoint that exact moment when someone has um, crossed over from life to death um, is really difficult. And that parallels grieving, right? So the grieving is because we, we talk about that a lot at the Douglas Center. That grieving, grief is a process, right? Yeah. Can you say more about those parallels? Uh, about grieving being a process? Yeah. Um, sure. So, in thinking about like a person who's dying, um, there there are multiple uh, arenas within their life. So you think about like their physical body, you think about their emotional being, you think right. about their spiritual being, um, their relational being, and dying encompasses every aspect of a person's being, and so does grief. And so as a person is dying um, physically, they may also be dying emotionally, spiritually, yeah. um, and conversely, we've also... Uh, experience some people who have had like a, a spiritual rebirth as they're dying. Um, yeah. So there, there are multiple ways to to feel uh, someone who is dying, um, and so in many ways, the physical death is just the culmination of the death, which is why we say grief is grief, whether it's before the death or after the death. Um, I think in Western culture, we like to have like. A finitude, like and pinpoint. Okay, this is when the person died. Right. So now that I can grieve, yeah. And there's a lot more blurring of of lines and boundaries um, that we've experienced. Uh, yeah. yeah, and the and and the ways that it affects a person. Uh, you know, we hear about this on previous podcasts. Just some really sometimes unexpected uh, effects of grief on a, on the griever. 
Right. And the way that they express that or fe- or the feelings that they have, and you know, unsure if that's the correct feeling to have, and uh, and so that so we've talked about that a lot in previous podcasts. But you're saying also that in dying, it's not necessarily just uh, you're not just circling the drain in every way. I mean, you're not. Uh, that's maybe a horrible way to say it, but you know, you, you often think that every process is being diminished always and there's no there's no rebounding or anything but you're saying people may rebound in certain ways there's in spiritually they may rebound emotionally in the way they connect with their family they may rebound for a bit even physically they may rebound for a bit right right but you know everybody grieves differently and everybody yeah. dies differently yeah right yeah that's really that's so interesting super super interesting stuff and I love I love how much um, we're learning about this, uh, and especially you and Rebecca, and, uh, the volunteers who are working with the Pathways program. How much we're learning as an organization about um, about how to how to help and how to serve. And yeah. and I was going to say likewise. It's not just uh, cognitive learning; it's emotional learning. Um, it's it's a physical learning of how to be present mm-hmm. um, with illness um, and and how to be present with the anxiety that um, being with someone who is dying brings naturally um, yeah. you know doctors nurses um, you know they have anxiety around people who are dying and let alone uh, family members like and this is their loved one who's dying um, yeah that's tough can can you for Listeners, this so far up to this point, as we're talking, this has been kind of a bit of a philosophical ramble, and I love those. But sometimes folks who are listening can really like like something to hang on to. Yeah, and we like to throw that stuff in the show notes. Uh, do you have maybe something you can talk about with? Um, I don't know what what families face when they've got a family member who is dying, and what. What kinds of what can they expect? Ooh, uh, that's a great question, and it's a hard answer. Um, yeah. So I, I think the first thing uh, to expect is uh, anxiety. Um, there's a lot of unknown and unpredictability. Um, even if there's been a diagnosis and a prognosis and a set of let's say you've got six months to live, um, doctors are using their best guess and can't actually actually pinpoint okay you're gonna die on this day um and the exact nature of how that death is gonna go some people will die in their sleep some people may end up suffocating uh on fluids that's building up in their their lungs um some people might have a heart attack and even if you do have you know a terminal illness or an advanced serious illness there's no guarantee that you're actually going to die of that you may die in a car accident on your way to the hospital so there's just a lot of awareness of the possibility of death and so research has shown that children who have a family member who's dying uh, have really high levels of anxiety that sounds like a lot like a like a response to a loss of control almost yes and and it's a repeated loss of control so it's not just a one-time event yeah. Um, but it's it's multiple events. It's that's live being lived out each day, that the person is you know they're getting weaker, or they're coughing more, or um, perhaps their cognitive abilities are diminishing, and so that loss of control is 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 repeated. 
That sounds exhausting. Yes. That's, that's the other thing to expect is that um, when somebody is dying, um, the surrounding family members and support system is usually completely overwhelmed yeah. um, and taxed out because it takes everything. Um, you know, it, it takes all of the financial, the mental, uh, emotional, and physical strength of that support, sy support system to hold that person who's dying and to hold itself that, you know, that makes me think of, and I'm sorry, I don't want to uh, take you too far afield here, but, but for those that are supporting the family, the friends and relatives who are kind of watching from the sidelines and maybe jumping in to help a little bit here and there, they probably need to have some, or it's probably helpful for them to have some degree of... Uh, graciousness or an ability to flex and not have have the same kind of expectations as you would have of someone who is really on top of their game exactly so if if um people who want to support that family if they just take a posture of patience and yeah. offering support without any strings attached and support could look like hey i can you know take you to the hospital if you need it or to the doctor's appointment or I could pick up groceries um, but just not holding anything um, emotional attachments to that if that family decides like they don't need it or they don't respond yeah you know, again they're they're overwhelmed and so they may not be in a physically or an emotionally uh, um, space where they can respond to your support um, so not taking that stuff personal. If somebody says, yeah, I know we had an appointment. Sorry, we're not going to do that now. And I guess that sometimes it's probably pretty blunt. You know, somebody may not have the emotional energy to, to explain everything. Why we're not doing that now. We're just not, don't come over. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, that'd be, that'd be hard to, that'd be hard to, uh, be able to uh, you just have to be a really gracious and patient person like you said a posture of patience i guess is a great way of saying that to be able to go yep okay i get it and we'll talk about this later you know in a couple of years or something i suppose but uh, man that would be tough as someone who really cared for that family um, to both be there and not be there I guess as as needed, and know that know that not being there is what's needed at the time. Sometimes it's paradoxical. It is paradoxical. <laughs> um, and the, and the the other piece of advice I would give, ironically, would be to restrain from giving advice. Ah, um, yeah. So so many of our families are are trying to navigate not just you know the medical system, but also the ethical system that you know when somebody is dying and the choices that they have to make um, and they may have choices that they never thought they were going to have to make um, and choices between two things that you know neither sound good or appetizing or appealing in either yeah. way so I'm um, just holding a, a space of openness and acceptance and encouragement um, rather than sharing whatever opinions that you may have, um, and just and if you can't if you can't do that, then maybe you know just say, 
uh, I'm thinking about you. I want to support you um, in more tangible ways. And then leave that be. That's a really good comment. And we'll be sure to make that show up in the show notes because I think that's super important. We're talking about supporting families, just kind of abstaining from offering unsolicited advice to to the grieving the family in grief, uh, and what what you might say instead of that. Will you say that again? Ooh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Let me see if I can recall exactly what I said. So if the families, you know, instead of instead of offering up a, a piece of advice for the grieving family or telling them what to do, what might another person or family say instead? Like what could they fill that space with instead of a you know a piece of advice about things? Um, by focusing on more tangible aspects of support, um, yeah. you know, like transportation or you know even mowing the grass or yeah. uh, grocery shopping and just saying I you know I, I want to be there for you um, and if the conversation ends up going into philosophical ways you know you can politely decline and just say you know I'm not in a, in a space to dialogue with you about that and I want to yeah. make sure that you have someone um, that you can share that with that will respond to the same energy level that you're putting forth so there's there's gentle ways to kind of redirect that conversation. Yeah. But you have to come into it with an open heart and an open mind. And if you don't have that first, um, then you can't redirect. That's a, that's a good list of things. We're going to make sure we get this all up on the show notes. Do you have any others to add? Um... Well, uh, I mean, we'll we'll add a few to the show yeah. notes that that we don't have time to to talk about. Um, but I would say, just overall, um, you know, if if you can offer opportunities for respite, you know, like hey, I, I can sit and and watch the person who's dying if they need that. Yeah. Um, or just, hey, I was thinking about all of you, so I bought you know some gift cards to a restaurant. You know, yeah. it's on me. Don't worry yep. about it. Like, just go out and um, have some moments away. Um, those are always helpful. Yeah, how to be helpful in in inobtrusive ways. Seems like yes. Yeah. Unless you're asked to be obtrusive, that's always the funny little dance, isn't it? Like, don't offer advice unless you're asked to offer advice, or don't be intrusive unless you're invited in. <laughs> Oh, no. The the phrase that always comes to my mind is it's not about me. Yeah. It's not about yeah. me. And if you can remember that, uh I think you know that's that's the best key advice is it's not about you. It's about as as the speaking as a a person outside of the grieving family. Correct. Yeah, how do you support them and turn your focus away from yourself and and add them, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's good. Uh, what else you got for us about this stuff? This is just almost too much from my mind to take in. <laughs> well, you know? you know, and we're just talking about it. We're actually not living that experience. And, right. and I think that's exactly the, the feelings that our families have experienced. Uh, is, is this, it's an overwhelming like tidal wave 
of experiences. You know, they're they're having to learn a new language of the medical system. They're having yeah. to navigate financial issues that, even in the best circumstances. So I'm, I would say the best circumstances would be um, a family who has a doctor and a therapist and has you know uh, a substantial amount of financial resources and a great um, supportive network. Yeah. Even then. Um, dealing with an advanced serious illness is still going to be challenging. It's, sh- it's going to be choppy waters. It's not going to be super smooth sailing. No, it's not. There's, there's right. just going to, it's just going to be messy all around. And hardly anybody has that ideal setup that you talked about. There, I mean, there's always going to be some deficit, whether that's the dollars, right, or the emotionally stable support network, right, or whatever, or you know, an ability to, uh, to access the kind of care that you really, really may need or the therapist or whatever it is, it seems like there's going to be some deficit and that just makes things, it just exacerbates things, I suppose. So, man, that's just a lot of stuff. (laughs) It is. It really is. Um, And I I was going to say a little tidbit about the medical system. Um, The medical system is, is, is recognizing uh, the needs of families and um, and patients who are dying, and starting to understand that, in and of itself, the medical system can be traumatizing. So there's yeah. the diagnosis, and then there's the actual like going through the medical system. And uh, the National Institute of Health came out with a report in October, just kind of highlighting the need for the entire medical community to to do wraparound services and a continuum uh-huh. of care around families who have someone with, with an illness, um, but they're not there yet. And so, you know, this is learning like the medical language and learning how to advocate and maneuver through the system and, and letting it be a person centered yeah. by person centered. We mean like um, the family and the individual direct the nature and the level of care rather than doctors and nurses um, telling the family what they should be doing. Yeah. T- speaking of that, and and maybe getting back to uh, the, the mission of the Dougie Center, you know, to, to support grieving children and their families, what can you tell us about the, the kids, the children in, in these families who are uh, in the midst of anticipatory grief or uh, post post death grief, however you want to however you want to uh, define those things. What what can a family do to help help the kids? That's a great question. Um, so I, I think the first thing is is I look at the lines of communication, and uh, no matter how young the kid is. Um, they have the ability to perceive all of these things that are going on and to perceive the stress levels. Uh, we had a teen um, this past week kind of share about participating in our Pathways group. And uh, a lot of the times he's been pretty silent. And one of the volunteers asked him, can you can you share about your experience about being silent? And he said, well, you know, babies learn first by listening you know, they can't really communicate, but they can take in all the information. And I think that's what's going on with the children within these families. They're taking in all the information, whether or not somebody is actually directly communicating with them. 
be. Who, who said that? A kid? A kid. Yeah. Oh. One of our, one of our, uh, our participants. Oh, the gold nuggets. Yeah. They're, they, yeah. Um, the little tidbits of wisdom that they share with us is, is quite amazing. Yeah. Um, so no matter how hard or difficult the truth may be, we believe the truth is the best medicine. And so a lot of times um, a kid already knows that either it's a parent or um, their sibling is dying. We had one family um, where the kids hadn't been told that their dad was dying. And uh, it was a, a family event where there was extended family and um, the child went around to each member of the extended family asking them if they were going to die, except for one person. And mm. that was his dad. Yeah. Who was dying. Yeah. So he already knew. So, so don't, so we, this is a pretty core tenet of, of our work at the Dougie Center, isn't it? The idea that just tell the truth to the child. Don't, don't, don't open up too many opportunities for them to create some alternative reality. Right. Yeah. Right. And tell it often because uh, children will sometimes forget or they'll repeatedly ask questions. And this is how they learn through uh, about the world is through repetition. Yeah. So as hard as it might be to hear for the hundredth time, is dad going to die or is dad dying? Yeah. Um, you just have to answer patiently and in the affirmative by saying yes. Yeah. Especially, I suppose, younger younger kids. I know my kids, as when they were younger, that repetition, the frequency with that repetition was, uh, the duration of the frequency was shorter. So I had to say it a lot of times and more often. And and as they've gotten older, I still have to repeat things and tell them again and again, but uh, not as often. Right. They'll go longer periods of time uh, where they don't need to hear it again and again. But But... The idea is still there. That repetition is super important. Yeah, and if you can if you can communicate often, even if there's no update, you know, I think that's important too. Um, just yeah. keeping those lines of communication open so that um, the relationship that they're building with the surviving parent is built on trust and yeah. consistency. Yeah, that's great. What else? Um, being able to. In the midst of chaos, and this is going to be one of the biggest challenges, being able to provide structure and routine. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, we recognize that that is going to be really difficult, you know, with medical emergencies and, um, you know, potentially having strangers and family members coming in and out of the house. Um, having a consistent routine makes children feel safe. Yeah. So, um whatever it is that you decide to do. Um, so it could be waking up at the same time and, um, and singing a song or reading a bedtime story, being able to provide as much of the routine as possible. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That stuff is comforting, even for me. Yeah. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. And also to provide opportunities for kids to be kids and teens to be teens yeah. uh, and recognize that this, you know, is just one aspect of their life and they're still a kid and they're still a teen and they still need to be able to play and they still need to be able to hang out with friends um and a lot of our our teens will say but they feel guilty they feel guilty for hanging out with their friends or um 
or they when they're hanging out with their family, they feel like they're missing out uh, hanging out with their friends. So being able to navigate um, those waters. Especially around a teen. We did do a recent episode around how to how to help a grieving teen. So that might be a good refresher if you haven't if, if listeners haven't heard that. Yeah. Good. Well we're we're uh, starting to run out of time here. Anything else you wanna put out there? We're gonna of course we're gonna get all these you, you kind of hit a lot of sort of bullet points verbally, and we're going to get that stuff up on the show notes. Anything else you want to put out there? Uh, my, I guess my last nugget uh, would be that um, expect role conflicts. So um, if you have a, a partner who's dying, expect there to be a conflict between being that person's partner and being a parent mm. um, and learning how to navigate those roles and recognizing that you can't be everything to everyone and um and you're going to disappoint someone um, but giving yourself permission to do that um and allowing other people to step in um is would would be really helpful just in navigating all of this that makes sense so you're saying if they're in uh in the case of uh a parent who is dying, that there may be some some role conflict or change in that relationship. Does that happen with the kids too? Do the kids turn into a parent, or that you know what I mean? Sometimes they do. Instead of being the child, they become the caregiver. Yeah. And it's it's a role reversal. Um, yeah. Or if it's a sibling dying, then you know it may be the sibling that gets a lot of the attention, and then they become the silent child, and then they feel neglected. Um, so there, there's a lot of role. You're talking about the surviving sibling. Right, the surviving, yeah. yes. We'll, again, we'll have this stuff up on the show notes, all these things that Tony's talked about. Super important and super helpful. I think we're going to have more conversations about this because we went pretty broad on this. I, I, I get the sense that we went kind of broad. Yeah. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, we could. I think each each of those pieces could be its own podcast. Yeah. So we'll come back around to this with Tony and or Rebecca Hobbs, Lauren. Tony, thanks a ton for for talking about this stuff. And everybody else, all you listeners, thank you for listening in on another episode of the Dear Dougie podcast. To learn more about us and to listen to past episodes, find us at Dougie.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our username on both is The Dougie Center. And we want to answer your questions about grief and loss, so send them our way at help at Dougie.org. And when you do that, just put podcast somewhere in the subject line so we can filter that out uh, from all the other email we get to that address. Uh, Thanks again for listening, and uh, tune in next week for another episode. Thanks, Tony. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening.